This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. The legacy of Hilton Kramer, the great critic and our founding editor, weighs heavily on all of us here at the new Criterion. But no more so than our Hilton Kramer fellow, the young writer who joins us each year for an editorial apprenticeship. The Hilton Kramer Fellowship is in its eighth year at the new Criterion, and in addition to adding much life to the editorial office, our fellows have gone on to become editors at the Wall Street Journal, the American Spectator, the Washington Post, and even here at the new Criterion. I should add that the fellowship is underwritten by the annual support of our readers and listeners. So thank you, because this episode is also an extension of your generosity. That's because I am joined today by our eighth fellow, Isaac Sly. Isaac, welcome. Thanks, James. Great to be here. Hailing from Waco, Texas, Isaac is a 2018 graduate of the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. Isaac was an English major, but you will soon learn more about why his specialty has become Russian literature in translation. And while it is true that Isaac joined us in June 2020, because of the pandemic, for the first few months, he had to telecommute to our New York offices from Georgia. Not the state of Georgia, but the Republic of Georgia. Well, we all want to hear more about that because Isaac has great stories to share from that ancient country. In July, we got a glimpse of his travels through a piece he wrote for Dispatch, our online site, called Local Boy Makes Bad. Isaac, I wonder if you would read for us the first few paragraphs of that essay, which you published while in Georgia. I'd be happy to. This is from Local Boy Makes Bad. This 4th of July, as I was traveling between the Georgian capital of Tbilisi and the mountain spa town of Borjomi, I made a stop in Gori, a small city of about 48,000 in Georgia's centralmost region. It is a nondescript place, the buildings largely Soviet or cheaply built prefabs from the 90s. It most recently made headlines when it was besieged and held by Russian forces for 10 days during the 2008 Russo-Georgian War. None of this was, of course, why I decided to stop. Gori is the birthplace of Yosip Jugashvili, the ethnic Georgian better known to the world as the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. It is also the location of the Joseph Stalin Museum, built in 1957, four years after his death, the only museum of note dedicated exclusively to the life and work of the Soviet leader. It is a shockingly well-preserved relic of Soviet Stalinist ideology and propaganda. Moreover, it is one of the few overt memorials to Stalin to survive the Khrushchev-era program of de-Stalinization in the late 1950s. The museum is located within Gori's Stalin Park, situated on Stalin Avenue, a sprawling two-story Italianate palazzo the building looks like what would happen if the Soviets tried to construct a consulate on Venice's Grand Canal. 
A long colonnade runs along the front of the building, through which one enters a reception hall and ticket office. The exhibition galleries have grand high ceilings, faded Soviet-era wall paint, and fluorescent light fixtures in various states of repair. It is dim and musty inside, so the windows are left open in the summer. Through them one can view the hot, dusty city of Gori and hear the sounds of traffic and children playing in the park. It was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, but in a time of coronavirus unease, I had the run of the place for a good hour or so, only bumping into a small tour group shortly before I left. I was offered a personal tour in Russian for free, which I took. I was eager to get a feel for the voice of this strange place and to see how the museum's own employee would attempt to explain the collection. One of the museum's small staff of matrons, in a stern Soviet schoolmarm manner, supervised my walk through the museum while giving a well-rehearsed lecture on the quote-unquote highlights of Stalin's life. <laughs> and for the full piece, be sure to go to Dispatch. I guess de-Stalinization didn't quite make its way to Georgia. Didn't quite make its way. You know, from the title, Local Boy Makes Bad, I'm kind of trying to play with some of the, you know, the feelings I encountered while I was in Georgia towards Stalin. Um, very complicated, to say the least. Of course, he's known to the world at large as one of the greatest dictators of the 20th century um, and a perpetrator of grave crimes against humanity. It hardly needs to be explained. But to Georgians, his legacy is something more than that. Well, I, I would say, Isaac, that um, we share one affinity with uh, Joseph Stalin, which is in a, uh, we like a mineral water called Borjomi. And I see you brought a bottle of Borjomi into the podcast need. studio, otherwise known as my office today. That's right. Uh, it is a mineral water that provides more than your daily allowance of salt with every gulp. That's right. Uh, if you look on the label as well, it, uh, it recommends all kinds of other uh, uh, Lesser-known benefits. Uh, it'll cure stomach ailments. It'll cure hangovers. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite the miracle drug. So what are, what are the people of Georgia like? It sounded like, uh, from what you told us while you were there, it's a, it's a lovely country. It's one of my favorite places. I, I visited it not knowing what to expect. Uh, like most Americans, uh, I think Georgia ranks very low on our, uh, our radar. Can you um, even place it on a map for us? Sure. So Georgia is in the Caucasus Mountains. It's uh, located right on the southern border of Russia, kind of sandwiched between Turkey and Russia, um, right on the edge of the Black Sea. It's a mountain country for the most part. Um, it's has uh, it has a beach running along uh, the shores of the Black Sea, uh, an old port called Batumi, uh, which was an old uh, uh, Greek city, I believe. Um, it's a fascinating country once you get to know the people, once you get to explore it. You know, I, I, I uh, encountered so many stories there and, uh, you know, learned so much of history stretching from the time of the Soviet Union all the way back to ancient Greece. And how many months did you end up spending there? I was there for seven months. How long were you, was your trip supposed to be? Probably only a month. Uh -huh. And uh, as you mentioned, maybe it's the name, but Georgians have a special thing for George Bush. You want That's to explain right. that? Well, one of the first things an American will notice uh, when you land at the capital, Tbilisi, uh, at uh, Tbilisi International Airport, 
you'll hop in the taxi. You'll be heading into the middle of town. You're riding on the, the George W. Bush Highway. That is the main road in Georgia from the main airport to the capital. Uh, now, why would it be called uh, the George Bush Highway? Well, it's not just the name. He visited, um, I believe it was 2004, 2005, uh, shortly after uh, their, uh, the Rose Revolution took place in Georgia. This was a uh, democratic revolution that took place under a peaceful revolution, I should say, under Mikhail Saakashvili at that time. Um, I can remember myself when I was young seeing uh, George Bush on the television when he went to go visit. This was a huge event for Georgians. Um, and I think it, I think it points to something uh, very profound that I noticed about Georgians while I was there and that I, I appreciated it and attempted to understand better as well. Uh, Georgians are incredibly warm towards Americans, incredibly welcoming. And, you know, there's so many, there's so many cliches that one can say about travel and about discovering a new country. You know, the things I could say, the Georgians are warm people, the Georgians are welcoming, they have a great culture. You, these are things you could, of course, say about many different countries when you go visit. But what I found unique about the Georgians, uh, at least in terms of countries I visited in Europe, countries I visited in Eastern Europe, was how closely, how in, uh, warmly they look towards America and how uh, invested they are in being, uh, uh, and, and as a country and as a people, in being friends of the United States. So you were in Georgia, you were editing the new Criterion online as you were there. Uh, what was the time difference we had? We had, I think it was about a nine-hour nine time difference at that time. Uh, yeah. You made it work. Thank you so much. It, it was pretty seamless from our end. Thanks. I, I guess you could be it could have been quarantined in a worse place. It was a nice place to be quarantined, I will say that. And you were there with your wife, and I That's remember right. you told us a story that she had to, re to return to Russia and make a border crossing that sounded like uh, it was something out of uh, the Middle Ages. That's right, yeah. So our journey uh, to get my wife back to her native country of Russia uh, took us about four hours up into the high Caucasus mountains. Uh, flights were non-existent. Uh, the border between Russia and Georgia runs through the high Caucasus mountains. Uh, these are very tall mountains. And the passage is near a town called Stepansminda near a great old mountain called Kazbegi, which is actually a, uh, I believe it's a dormant volcano right now. Uh, this is kind of one of the great treasures of the Caucasus, one of the great treasures of Georgia. You see it on, uh, in a lot of art, a lot of posters and things like that. Um, it's kind of a holy mountain. One takes a taxi from the capital, Tbilisi, three hours up to Kazbegi, up through the ski resorts that uh, the Soviet uh, apparatchiks used to visit uh, during the time of the Soviet Union. You should remember Georgia was where you got to go if you were high up in the party, if you were a successful party member. That was uh, the vacation spot of choice. Um, so up we went past the goat farms, past the ancient churches from 1,000, 2,000 years ago. It's a dramatic drive. Beautiful green mountains turning slowly into snow-capped peaks. Finally, we get to the border. Uh, there's a, you know, I'd think about a one to two mile gap between the Russian and Georgian borders in a no man's land. Well, you get to the border station, thousands of feet up above sea level, high up in the mountains. Uh, you have to know a, know a person who knows a person, a friend of a friend. Uh, you get a phone number. You give it a call. 
a white van comes to the border uh, and you hop in uh, and <laughs> you are ferried across this uh, no man's land, about a 20, 20 minute bumpy ride. Uh, and you reach the Russian border station. Um, you show them your papers and hopefully you're in Russia. So this is the journey my wife had to take. Nervous, uh, a nervous one to watch as a husband, uh, to say the least. So you watched as she got into the white van and you had to say your goodbyes. Uh, to, to get into the unmarked uh, Ford Econoline van with uh, <laughs> no seating in it. This is what you do. Um, say, listeners, who knew the Hilton Kramer Fellowship involved such adventures? <laughs> that's right. That's right. As scary as it was at the time, we made it through it. And, you know, I, it's it's... I wouldn't I wouldn't call it an experience I'd cherish by by any means, but it's one of many interesting stories that I I, I was able to tuck away in my in my notebook uh, during my time there. So I've got, you know, I've got a bunch of of, of stories from my Georgian time bouncing around in my head right now. So well, and been... when you finally made your way to New York and joined us here at the office, you were sure to share Georgian cuisine with us. That's there's right. a restaurant near our office. Uh, what's the what's it called again? So there's actually uh, there's a couple in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. The one that uh, the new Criterion staff got to go to with me was uh, it's called Chama Mama. Uh, that's uh, kind of the, the the premier Georgian restaurant in Manhattan right now. It's on 14th Street. It's on 14th Street in Chelsea. Uh, I believe it's if you go to 14th and Fifth, you're not far away. It's a wonderful cuisine. Very unusual wine. That's right. I wonder if you just tell us briefly about what defines Georgian food. The first thing one's likely to see when one walks into a Georgian restaurant is uh, a dish called hachapuri. Put simply, this is a kind of cheese bread, but there's a little more to it than that. You can get a couple different varieties. These are all from different regions of Georgia. Uh, it's very, very interesting to see how even in such a small country, Georgia has population of about 3 million. There's all kinds of local variants to cuisine and culture and even dialects. Just by virtue of how the Caucasus Mountains, how the geography there splits up people and encourages this kind of fragmentation of culture. The kind we had, uh, that was Imaruli Khachapuri from the central region of uh, one of the central regions of Georgia. This is kind of a flat calzone. You can also have Ajaruli Khachapuri. It's a boat-shaped cheese dish where it's open-faced, you kind of dip the bread in the middle. And what that is, that's a, it's shaped like a boat, and it's actually from the shores of the Black Sea, uh, where Jason and the Argonauts landed uh, in the myth of the, the Golden Fleece. Um, if you're a, a mythology buff, you'll remember that uh, that region was called Colchis, and Colchis is indeed the, the historical, the Greek name for, for Georgia. There were some wonderful tasty meats involved meats. with the meal, but what, what also stuck in my mind and in my mouth, was uh, the wine, which tasted a bit like it maybe spent time with Jason and the Argonauts. It may have indeed. Because it had a very strong ceramic flavor. Uh, you want to explain that? That's a good appraisal. It's a good appraisal of it. It's, it's an ancient wine culture. Um, they would claim uh, that it's the oldest. Um, there have indeed been archaeological excavations finding uh, remnants of uh, viticulture, uh, I, I believe seven, 8,000 years old in Georgia. So it's very, very old, the culture there. 
Uh, and they still do it pretty much like they did it back in Jason and the Argonauts' time. It's made with an entirely organic process, um, stored in these clay pots in the ground. So when you pull it out, once it's aged, uh, it, it does indeed have that very ceramic taste. It's kind of a musty taste, too. Well, and you grow to like it. I, I imagined it was like pure meris that you read about in ancient texts. I, I got quite used to it in my time there. It's a, it's, I, ho- I hope to see Georgian wines uh, make it bigger. In, in America someday too. I, I think I think there's quite the opportunity there, and there and like the food, there's a, a thousand different varieties. Well, tell us about your translation interests. I understand you have a current translation project. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I'm very fortunate. I have a great translation partner, uh, my wife, who's a, a, a native Russian speaker. Uh, right now, we're working together on a novel by uh, an author called Viktor Polyavin, who is. A very well-known and respected uh, author in Russia uh, since about the early 1990s. He was one of a, a group of young uh, of young uh, writers, a kind of crop that 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 uh, rose up in after the fall of the Soviet Union, right around that time. Uh, Vladimir Sorokin is another uh, one of his contemporaries that's that's well known. Uh, also, uh, I, I was very fortunate to get a commission as his authorized translator for uh, one of his recent novels uh, with my wife as well. Uh, what we do for this, um, if, if you've ever read a, uh, a Russian novel translated by Pevyar and Volokonsky, very respected translation team, I actually talked a bit, spoke a bit with uh, uh, Richard Pevyar a year or two back, and he offered some very helpful advice as we started on this journey. Our process tracks theirs very closely. Uh, I, of course, rely on my wife uh, for all the nuances and details of the Russian language. Uh, my, my, my Russian is mostly oral that I've picked up uh, traveling and living in Eastern Europe. Uh, she brings the, the core Russian text uh, into an English translation, which I then edit and revise with her and with her uh, input. So we kind of, we cross-examine. So we produce a collaborative text in the end. Um, it's a great bit of fun. It can be stressful too. Um, you know, it's, there's, I think, reasons why you don't see more husband and wife teams on the translation circuit. Um, uh, advantages for it and disadvantages as well. But we've, we've enjoyed it a lot. And we're looking to, uh, to get it published uh, sometime soon. We have the author's very kind support. So we've we've been very fortunate. And this writer, you've described him as the Welbeck of Russia. It's it's hard to 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 make these comparisons, but I think on a certain level, he's quite like Welbeck. He's a provocateur. In the 1990s, some applied a kind of postmodernist label to him, but I, I think that's very inaccurate. Um, he's you know he's very informed by. Uh, Russian literature of the past pulls heavily, of course, from Dostoevsky, um, from Tolstoy, uh, very heavily from Gogol uh, and Nabokov and some of the more uh, satirical uh, uh, writers from Russian literature. He definitely gets his uh, satirist's bite from those writers. Um, He's quite the experimenter. Um, He's uh, a great short story author as well. He has one short story written from the perspective of a bike shed. Um, another great story where uh, two men are having a ph- philosophical uh, conversation. It has, it has a bit of a waiting for Godot kind of quality to it. You later discover 
20 pages in that there are two chickens on a broiler farm waiting to get <laughs> waiting to get harvested. So he's he's kind of a restless uh, experimenter with form and style. So I've enjoyed I've enjoyed uh, uh, wrestling with his with his work as well. And yeah, for our so audience, his name once again, Victor Pliavin is his name. You you can find quite a few of his books in English translation. Uh, Buddha's Little Finger, uh, Oman Ra, a few others. Generation P are some of his bestsellers in Russia and fair sellers in America as well. Um, he's uh, he's also had a, a movie produced uh, based on one of his works that's called Generation P. And so publishers reach out to Isaac. Please, I'm I'm uh, I'm here and available with this project. Okay. So, well, yeah. now Isaac when we last left your young bride, she was uh traversing the uh Georgian Russian border in a white unmarked van. She is a, a book specialist. Would you call it philology, or is it not you quite? Know, I ask her for the specific word for it. She's studying bibliography and rare books. Right rare now. books, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and be in France, in but France. because of the pandemic, she's back in Russia right now. Over Christmas, you went to visit. And what can you tell me about that trip to Russia? I I took a plane up to a uh, town called Archangel, Arkhangelsk in Russian. Uh, Archangel is one of the northernmost large cities of Russia. Um, it's right past the edge of the Arctic Circle, and it's the most important northern port of Russia. It opens onto the White Sea, which is a small sea. Uh, northeast of Finland, if you can imagine a place northeast of Finland. So that's where my wife's from. Uh, I went there to spend the holidays, to spend uh, uh, the new year with my in-laws. Uh, a fascinating city. Fascinating city. Now, I've been to St. Petersburg, yeah. and that seems pretty far north. But Does. this archangel is how many hours north of St. Petersburg? Well, well, so by plane, only two or three. Mm. But by car? I think you'd be looking at about a 24-hour drive northeast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> how many how many hours of daylight do you get uh, around Christmas time there? We were looking at about about three, three hours of good daylight tops. You get a little bit of twilight about after 2, 2.30, you get sunset. 3 o'clock, you've got twilight. 3.30, you're pitch black. Now, you're working on a story about ice fishing. That's right. That's right. I, I had uh, I had my, uh, my uncle-in-law... Uh, take me out uh, skiing into the taiga. Uh, and we uh, went out on a lake, cut a hole in the ice, and uh, ice fished. So I had, a, I had a great experience doing that, a Russian ice fishing expedition. And uh, I've been writing a piece about that. Great. Well, well we look forward to reading Thanks. it. Um, you're halfway through your fellowship with us. That's right. About. Um, what can you tell us about the experience? Uh, it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, what, what can I say? I... I think highlights only, please. <laughs> only the best. Oh, and only, actually, add the lowlights. Only, only the no, only the greatest hits okay. for you, James. Only the greatest <laughs> hits. What I've loved about the Hilton Kramer Fellowship is how it's taught me to be. I would think. I would say I, this might sound strange at first, but to be simple, to to pare down my writings to the basics, to to focus on strong arguments, to focus on direct arguments, uh, to talk about really what really matters, and that's that's been a real value. Uh, to get that daily feedback, to get that daily constructive criticism on what kind of writer you are, and to, to be to be pushed constantly in the most constructive way possible by your uh, your colleagues to uh, to to kind of bring out the best 
that's that's in your head to put down on paper. Well, Isaac, tis a gift to be simple. This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor, and our guest today has been our Hilton Kramer fellow, Isaac Sly. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here.